Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live. On WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. This is a very special program to me because I think it represents what the Albany Symphony does and what the Albany Symphony stands for in a way that no other concert we've performed in recent memory does. It's all built around uh, a remarkable project that we began six or seven years ago, a project called the Spirituals Project, in which we invited a number of our favorite composers, each to pick his or her favorite spiritual and cast it in new orchestral clothing. But more of that later in the program. In designing this program, uh, I very much wanted to have a through theme that related to the spirituals, both before and after we presented those pieces, of pieces that had some connection both to the Civil War era, which of course those spirituals came from, uh, and of course they came from even before the Civil War period, from the era of slavery in America, but also uh, an idea of indigenous song built in to American masterpieces. So we began our program with a very unusual and singular, very beautiful uh, and charming piece by the Greek-American composer George Syntakis, who's been a close friend of the Albany Symphony and is currently one of our resident composers. George makes his home right down in the Hudson Valley in Shokan, New York, and so we're always proud and excited to have one of our local masters featured on an Albany Symphony concert. This is a piece that George wrote in 1994 on a commission from the Alexandria, Virginia Symphony. It was the 50th anniversary of the symphony that year, and they asked George to create a piece that somehow wove together all sorts of folk songs, uh, particularly Civil War-era folk songs and fiddle tunes and other indigenous music sources, into a big symphonic piece. And for his preparation, uh, George was given an incredible compendium of about 200 songs, uh, both the sheet music as well as tapes of different folk singers singing and playing these songs. And George worked through all the pieces and called about 30 or 35 folk songs and fashioned an amazing piece, uh, a very Ivesian piece. If you know Charles Ives's music, you know that he very much liked to work in a sort of collage style, overlaying different kinds of music one over another that may not actually seem or sound particularly related. And in fact, I think that's one of the things Ives loved about different kinds of music smushed together was that they did sort of jar against each other. Uh, George's music actually, I think, is far less jarring than Ives's, but is uh, equally intriguing and wonderful and fanciful. So George uh, took these 30 or 35 uh, folk songs and folk tunes and wove them into a beautiful tapestry Beginning, actually, I should probably describe it to you, although I, I wouldn't give it away in a pre-concert talk, but since you can't actually see it visually, it begins with a, a lone country fiddler uh, wandering up the aisle from the very back of the house in the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall and eventually being joined uh, person by person by members of the, the violin section, sort of uh, enjoying different uh, fiddle tunes 
overlaying each other that builds to a climax, and then uh, the whole orchestra comes in, and we have this amazing, really sort of a, a, almost a pictorial journey of the Potomac Valley and uh, the Alexandria area. In fact, it is almost like a, a photographic journey because uh, at the first performance, I'm told, there was actually an accompanying slideshow that went along with the music. So when, when I found that out recently, I said to George, you mean we're playing a piece of music that was inspired by a slideshow? And he said, no, no, the slideshow came after. I wrote the piece, and then they added the slideshow. And so finally, after he heard us rehearse the piece and, and prepare it very well, he sent me a very kind email saying, you know, your performance sounded so perfect, it almost made me think that you'd actually seen the slideshow. But in fact, I've never seen the slideshow. Anyway, so the, the, the piece begins uh, with all these wonderful fiddle tunes and then uh, sort of an amalgam of different pieces. And about halfway through, the piece I think is 12 or 13 minutes long, about halfway through, the music becomes very somber and quiet. And you'll hear this very beautiful song intoned uh, very quietly in the two flutes, but but played at the softest possible side of the range. It's a piece called All Quiet on the Potomac, a very touching Civil War era song uh, written in 1861, describing a, a young sentry who's standing there and is shot and, and, and his thoughts as he dies. Uh, and George uses this song very extensively in this long, quiet period to sort of stand for the, the tragic event at the center of the Civil War era, the death of Lincoln. And so if you listen carefully, you may even hear this sort of build up to a climax when you hear a rim shot, a very loud sound from the where the, the snare drum player hits the rim of his instrument, and then uh, the music becomes even more serious and, and sadder, dare I say. So the second half of the piece is really all about the sadness accompanying the assassination of Lincoln and the, the terrible tragedy of that. But again, at the end, it, it comes back to, to be hopeful once again, and our fiddler stands up and gradually walks out back back to the back of the hall and out the door, uh, fiddling away, bringing the piece to a very beautiful close. Our fiddler is the very gifted violinist Gregor Kitsis, and uh, he's joined in this performance by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The work is George Syntakis's Let the River Be Unbroken. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Let the River Be Unbroken by the Greek-American composer George Syntakis, performed by the Albany Symphony with Gregor Kitsis as violin soloist, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Next on our program, to close the first half, was this amazing group of eight spirituals. The, the way this spirituals project came into being is uh, about seven or eight years ago, I was asked to do a concert with the Pittsburgh Symphony, and it was a concert, uh, sort of talk-and-play concert, all about the New World Symphony by Dvorak. And so to, in designing the program, I wanted very much to perform some classic spirituals on the first half of the program and, uh, and talk about the New World Symphony and play some other works and some selections from New World Symphony and on the second half play the entire New World Symphony because as you probably know Dvorak was strongly influenced and very moved by uh, the spirituals that he heard while he was in America. He spent three years in New York City living and working as the director of the National Conservatory of Music and uh, he had a, a very gifted young student a composing student as well as a vocal student at the school young African-American composer, singer, pianist named Harry Burley. And every afternoon, Harry Burley would come to Dvorak's apartment on East 14th Street and would sit at the piano and regale 
Dvorak with the songs of his people, with spirituals. And Dvorak really came to believe that American music should look much more to its own indigenous uh, song than to the models in Europe. You know, at that time, most classical music composers in America uh, wrote music that sounded suspiciously like Brahms or Dvorak himself. And Dvorak's message to American composers was to embrace our own indigenous music. Chief among those types of music would be spirituals. He felt they were incredibly powerful and moving and beautiful and soulful. And uh, even though he didn't directly quote any in his New World Symphony, they certainly informed the piece entirely. So uh, back to this concert in Pittsburgh, I was very eager to use some arrangements of spirituals with this wonderful young black baritone I'd met, Nathan Myers, but I had a lot of trouble finding good arrangements of spirituals for uh, baritone and, and orchestra. So on that concert, he ended up just singing with piano, but when I came back to, to Albany, I decided why not commission a whole bunch of my favorite composers, each to pick his or her favorite spiritual and to cast it in new clothing, to put it in, in his or her unique language. And so I, I turned to a great number of different composers uh, from all different kinds of backgrounds. I didn't want to just ask my African-American composer friends, because I, I really was much more interested in, in the idea that all Americans own these great art pieces, and I wanted to hear many different approaches to the pieces. So Chinese-American and, and white Anglo-Saxon-American and Jewish-American, and of course, a good number of African-Americans as well. Uh, I gave them all this wonderful collection of spirituals uh, edited by Harry Burley, Dvorak's friend. And uh, I said, pick your favorite one. And the only thing you have to do is maintain the contour of the melody line. I want to be sure that the, the song itself is fairly recognizable. But other than that, you can do whatever you like with the spiritual. And, and as I think you'll discover, each composer really built his or her own unique and beautiful world with these pieces. We had such success with the first set, and Nathan Myers, our soloist, was such a, a, a sensation that two years later we invited Nathan back and commissioned another seven for a total of 13 in the set. Uh, and here, for this concert, we called eight of my personal favorites. And here they are now, just in order. First, John Harbison's uh, version of Ain't Gonna Study War No More, followed by Harvest in Daniel Bernard Romain's version. Then Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child, uh, arranged by Bunching Lam. And Didn't My Lord Deliver Daniel, Tanya Leone. Hear the Lambs a-crying, Donnell Fox, Deep River, Kevin Beavers, Stand Still Jordan, Richard Adams, and Wade in the Water by Williamstown resident Stephen Dankner. There's an interesting side story to that piece. In fact, there's a side story to many of these pieces. Stephen was a, a longtime resident of New Orleans. He lived there, I think, 30 or 35 years and um, decided to move back to the Berkshires where he and his wife had lived for many years before they lived in New Orleans. And they left actually the week or I think the day before uh, Hurricane Katrina hit. And so I asked him to, to create a spiritual shortly after this. And he, of course, was so personally touched by the, the terrible misfortune uh, of his great city of New Orleans during uh, Katrina that he selected this work, Wade in the Water, which brings our, our set to a, an incredibly intense and dramatic close uh, with wailing jazz trumpet at the very end, completely New Orleans style. So once again, these are eight works from the Spirituals Project. They're performed by the Albany Symphony with guest baritone Mr. Nathan Deshaun Myers. This is the Conductor's Notes Podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. 
the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. This theme of folk song runs through the whole program, from George Sintakis's collage of folk songs to the spirituals and to the final work on our program, Aaron Copland's complete ballet, Appalachian Spring, which, of course, as you, I'm sure, remember, features as a very important centerpiece the beautiful Shaker song, Simple Gifts. Now, interestingly, Simple Gifts was really unknown at the time Dvorak exhumed it. He found it in a collection of old Shaker songs and decided he wanted to use it in the center of his of his ballet. And so um, it's only since then that the song has gained such common cr- currency. Appalachian Spring was uh, commissioned by Martha Graham from Aaron Copeland in 1942-43. She paid him a total of $500. And interestingly, he uh, created the, the ballet for her ensemble, and it was meant to tour. And, of course, she had a small modern dance ensemble with a, an even smaller instrumental ensemble. Usually she used nine instruments, and he somehow managed to cajole his way up to 13 instruments. So the original ballet was written for 13 instruments, and there is still a, a beautiful 13-instrument version of the piece. It was such a success when it was premiered in 1944 that Copeland very soon thereafter created an orchestral suite, which was premiered by the New York Philharmonic, and which is the version that most of us know and love. But in making that suite, he actually cut out about 12 minutes of music of the original ballet. And later in the 1950s, Eugene Ormandy and the Philadelphia Orchestra very much wanted to put on the ballet with the Martha Graham Company, but found that about 12 minutes were missing. And so they convinced Copeland to orchestrate the missing 12 minutes. And so now there is this additional version uh, of the complete ballet in the orchestral version, seldom heard, occasionally performed, and it has been occasionally recorded, only once absolutely complete, I think, by Leonard Slatkin and the St. Louis Symphony. But this is a version that I find very intriguing, principally because it reinstates a very poignant and powerful eight-minute Civil War pantomime that was at the center of the ballet. Uh, It's a scene in which uh, Copeland gave very dramatic titles to it. Part of it's called Fear in the Night, Moment of Crisis. It's all about a, uh, a fugitive slave who's escaped from slavery and has come to visit this family, the family that's the central focus of the ballet in in the backwoods of Pennsylvania. In this scene, fugitive slave arrives, the mother denounces slavery, uh, and it ends with this terrifying section, fear in the night of, of the fugitive slave running on trying to find safety. Uh, and I, I've always felt that when one plays this eight-minute pantomime in the body of the full ballet, it actually gives the rest of the ballet a great deal more dramatic weight than it otherwise would have. It's one of my absolute favorite pieces in the suite as well, but in the suite, it's really almost all happy, gentle, beautiful music, whereas with this dark middle section, it it all becomes, frankly, much more poignant to me. So that is, in fact, the version we're playing uh, on this concert, uh, the complete ballet, Appalachian Spring, in uh, in its orchestral version. Martha Graham and Copeland went back and forth a great deal in 1943. Uh, They sent a lot of letters uh, to each other. Martha Graham kept proposing a different scenario that she was hoping Copeland would write music to, and he kept sort of gently rejecting in his very gracious way the scenarios. It began actually as a Medea tale uh, set in backwoods America. Copeland didn't like the whole Medea idea, so he steered 
Martha away from it. Eventually, it turned into a, a very positive and beautiful ballet about a young bride, a young woman, uh, and her mother, pioneers living in, in, the, in the mountains of Pennsylvania, and a young man, a young citizen coming to woo the girl, and then all about their courtship, their marrying, their community, and eventually they're settling down and having a life together. Interestingly, Copeland wrote the entire ballet after he and Martha Graham had settled on a scenario, and they didn't really have contact while he was composing. He sent the music to her uh, with merely the title Ballet for Martha. It didn't yet have a title. And then he went off to Mexico on a trip and only appeared in Washington, D.C. a few days before the premiere at the Library of Congress and was very surprised to see that Martha Graham had choreographed all sorts of different scenes and ideas to his music from what they had discussed. She took his music and really changed dramatically uh, what the choreography was. And sometimes he felt music that was supposed to go with one thing went with something entirely different. But he he really enjoyed it and thought she did a great job and found it very compelling. And there's a great story he liked to tell of, of going up to her and saying, so Martha, what are you going to call it? And she told him Appalachian Spring. And he said, oh, nice name. Where'd you get it? She said, it's from a Hart Crane poem. And he said, oh, does it have anything to do with the ballet? No, she said, I just like the title, so I used it. And then he would always tell the story, and he would put his head back and laugh and say, and not a day goes by when somebody doesn't come up to me and say, oh, Mr. Copeland, I just love your ballet, Appalachian Spring. When I hear it, I, I can just see the Appalachians, and I can just feel the spring. And he would put his head back and laugh and say, and you know, even I'm beginning to feel that way. When I hear it, I can see the Appalachians, and I can feel spring. So here it is now, the complete ballet, Appalachian Spring, Aaron Copland's masterpiece from 1944. It's the complete ballet version in the orchestral version, uh, played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony, and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live, on WMHT-FM, your classical companion.